Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Five Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Goliath Technologies, who help IT pros be proactive and anticipate, troubleshoot, and prevent end-user experience issues, regardless of where IT workloads or users are located. And also by Liquidware, creators of FlexApp, the most feature-rich application layering product on the market today. And now your news. I think the obvious biggest story of the week has to be what's going on with Zoom on macOS. And if you haven't followed it or heard about it, let me catch you up. Security researcher Jonathan Lishu this week exposed a very serious vulnerability on Apple Macs that have Zoom installed on them, or even just Macs that had Zoom installed at one time. He discovered that the application was setting up a local web server instance for the webcam functionality. This was opening up port 19421, which kind of comically wound up with hackers very quickly hacking into each other's webcam feeds and joking around with each other. But obviously, this vulnerability could have terrible ramifications in the wrong hands. By default, Zoom sessions start with your webcam on. Someone can remotely execute a Zoom session and peer into your camera. Not good, and that's some Black Mirror shit. Jonathan states that he first contacted Zoom back on March 8th of this year. His blog post on the vulnerability shows his many, many efforts to raise the alarm with Zoom, which at first went ignored, did eventually get through and he got on calls with the security team and even provided a fix, but unfortunately, no fix was implemented by Zoom within the 90 days provided, which is standard. Unfortunately, there was also a regression with the fix that exposed the vulnerability again as they were working on the problem. The good news is that Zoom has now released a patch. If you go into the app on your Mac today and check for updates, you'll get it. The bad news is, as pointed out by Groob on Twitter, it looks like there is a security pop-up prompting for credentials now suggesting there is a problem with audio, when in reality, it's to provide permission to run a kernel extension. Not better. The security community also posted several ways to manually mitigate the issue for yourself if you'd prefer to go down that route. Though it seems now, if you do go down that route and you're using the older version, just with the web server disabled, you'll get prompted by Zoom to update the application when you go in there. Kevin Beaumont on Twitter also highlighted that similar services on Mac, including from BlueJeans, opens a web server. That one is on port 18171. Ring Central opens a port on 19424, which I believe is an OEM version of Zoom anyway, so that's not hugely surprising. And both allow launching of meetings via local host as browser permissions get bypassed. It's a shame Zoom did not appropriately address this issue within the 90 days provided. It is good that there is a patch now, but I would suggest if you own a web camera or have a laptop with the web camera built in, it's a good idea to invest in a cover if you don't have one yet. If you go to a conference, a lot of vendors give them out for free, so definitely pick one up. Most recently, according to TechCrutch.com, Apple has actually also been pushing a silent update to remove the hidden Zoom web server from Macs. I'm definitely not a security expert, but I'm surprised that 
Apple's own telemetry service did not pick up that these types of web services are being installed on Macs, opening up those ports. I know there was a comment to me from somebody who is a little more well-versed in this that would you want Apple to detect on bound ports on your Mac? And personally, I would think, sure, I could get why that'd be a problem, but you know, Shodan and other services are doing that today. I'd certainly prefer for someone like Apple or Microsoft to detect these sorts of things and provide warning or preventative measures than have a hacker find it first and get into my stuff. Regardless, the fact that Apple are now silently removing a third-party product's install local web servers, pretty crazy. This is a pretty crazy story just altogether. According to Gadgets360, researchers at Kaspersky have uncovered new encryption ransomware being named Sodan that is exploiting a vulnerability that was patched back in October 2018. That vulnerability is CVE-2018-8453. Obviously, if you haven't patched your systems in a long time, you'd best get patching. I mean, that's pretty obvious. The researchers found that most targets of Sodan ransomware were found in the Asian region. 17.6% of attacks have been detected in Taiwan, 9.8% in Hong Kong, and 8.8% in the Republic of Korea. There have, however, also been attacks observed in Europe, North America, and Latin America too. Kaspersky also suggested that the ransomware note left on infected PCs is demanding $2,500 worth of Bitcoin from each victim. And because the way of the world right now is that these security nightmares are happening every week, ZDNet has also reported that developer Tut Costa detected a backdoor vulnerability in the strong underscore password Ruby library available on Ruby Gems. In this case, when a developer downloaded the library and checked a password, it would run a verification, but then also send the password to a web service running on smiley.zzz.com.ua. It would then go into a waiting state pending instructions. This could allow the bad actor to take the password and have their merry way with it. Touch reached out to the author of the library, and it seems an imposter released a new version of the library on RubyGems without their knowledge. At the time of the podcast, there have been 537 downloads of this malicious version. It's Patch Tuesday time again, and Sophos reports that 77 vulnerabilities are fixed with this patch cycle, including two zero days. The zero days in question are CVE-2019-0880 and CVE-2019-1132. Both elevation of privilege flaws currently being exploited in the wild by unnamed threat groups, so pretty serious and you'll definitely want to get patching. The first effects, CVE-2019-0880 affects the Windows SPL WoW 64 print spooler, while the CVE-2019-1132 is in the Win32K. There were multiple important security updates also for Internet Explorer 11 and Edge, as well as the AppX service, Azure, and SQL services. The patches are still pretty recent, and there are early reports that KB4506161 
is failing to install on SQL servers, but not much other information is available at this time. Check back next week. I'm sure there'll be more stories about the results of these patches. Bleepingcomputer.com have reported that Windows 10 users are finding that the slash SFC scan now feature is no longer working and that it states it found but could not fix corrupted Windows Defender PowerShell files. It's reported that it appears to be related to the latest definition updates for Windows Defender in version 1.297.823.0. It's important to note this is not believed to be associated with the July Windows updates that I talked about in the last story. Some users have reported being able to fix the error by running the following dism commands. dism slash online slash cleanup dash image slash check health then dism slash online slash cleanup dash image slash scan health and dism slash online slash cleanup dash image slash restore health. I now realize reading those kinds of commands on a podcast that people may only read the audio or sorry, may only listen to the audio is kind of redundant and stupid. I might not do that in future. Unfortunately, no official Microsoft fix is available at the time of this recording. Thanks to my buddy Dave Brett for this next one. He let me know that with the latest Unify firmware update, his port forwarding configuration got wiped out and never got written back. Dave let me know that others on the Slack channel have also reported that the issue is happening to them and he opened a support case. If you use Unify in your home lab, you may want to hold off on upgrading the firmware or you could risk losing your port forwarding and be stuck with no remote access if you rely on it for that. He also did confirm later that when he downgraded and performed the upgrade again, it worked. So maybe if you have some time to make sure that it's working before you go remote and need to rely on the port forwarding, that would be a good idea. So worst case scenario, I guess you may just need to go through the motions like Dave did. Microsoft stores will be holding free summer camps in their stores within the United States this summer, including a Harry Potter creative coding workshop, gaming summer camps, creating video games, and more. If you're in the United States, you can go to the link I provide on 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for episode 80 to learn more. If you're not in the U.S. and you would still love for your kids to get this kind of opportunity, I suggest you check out some coder dojos in your area. My tiny little village in, Ar- in the west of Ireland has one, and I think most places do now. The first GDPR-related penalty has been doled out to British Airways, whose security systems were breached last year. They are facing a record fine of £183 million. Until now, the largest fine imposed by the Information Commissioner's Office was £500,000. The BBC concluded that now the message is clear. If you don't treat your customers' data with the utmost care, expect severe punishment when things go wrong. British Airways certainly appears to be stunned. But then again, as reported, it could have been much worse because the full 4% of turnover would have meant a fine approaching 500 million pounds. I guess they're using some sort of rationale when doling out these fines, maybe considering whether there is intent or not before deciding if they're going to find the maximum 4%, which I think is pretty good. The report also suggests that 
the breach started in June of last year, which is around the time that GDPR actually came into effect. So if this fine is being put out there right now for something that happened just as GDPR came into effect, there could be others in the pipeline who will be getting fined for breaches from last year, I think. It's week three since the release of Raspberry Pi 4, and it's also week three of a story related to it on this podcast. It has been reported now by some that the Raspberry Pi 4 devices were not booting. It has been confirmed that not every USB-C cable out there in the world will work with the device. TechRepublic.com reports that Raspberry Pi 4 owners will need to use non-e-marked USB-C cables, the type used by many smartphone chargers, with a power supply that could deliver the 5.1V 3A output that the board needs. One option is to buy the cheap and cheerful $8 official Raspberry Pi 4 power supply to avoid disappointment. Several weeks ago, I reported about a preview release of Microsoft Defender ATP for Mac. Good news! It is now generally available. MacOS, Mojave, High Sierra, and Sierra are supported. SQL Server 2008 is now out of extended support and will no longer receive security updates for any 2008 version. You have been warned. The MSIX Packaging Tool July 2019 update is now available. Applications that require a reboot are now supported. Signing certs can now be set globally rather than needing to assign it manually each time. And it's pretty cool that it seems like there are steady enhancements each month. I'm hoping to talk a little bit about MSIX at E2EVC in Lisbon this November. If you'd like to hear more about it, please consider attending. You can sign up now. Chris Matthew, who I had the pleasure of interviewing for the Frontline Chatter podcast, was the keynote speaker at ComCon in the UK this week. If, like me, you're having a bit of a down week and feeling a little uninspired by your day-to-day tech work, you should check this out. It's pretty inspiring stuff, and it's a pretty cool glimpse of what lies ahead. This week, Jack Madden reported on the release of Lakeside SysTrack version 9, which is available on-premises right now and will be available cloud-hosted on July 29th. New features include SysTrack Assisted Heal, which will enable the service desk or help desk in your organization to kick off a script to fix issues on a user's endpoint. The SysTrack Mass Heal feature will be able to run a fix across many machines, not just targeted to that one. And also SysTrack AutoHeal, which can be triggered automatically based on metrics measured by SysTrack, which sounds pretty similar to what I do today in ControlUp. And actually, the other couple of features are things that ControlUp has been able to do with its script-based actions for a while. But it's really, really cool that existing Lakeside SysTrack customers will now be able to avail of this type of feature. And what I did find particularly interesting is the prospect of giving guidance to end users for fixing some of their own issues, which I think is pretty unique. So for example, provided in the article, they suggest that when there's a performance degradation detected on a user's workstation by SysTrack, it can pop up a message in the system tray that performance issues have been detected and it sees that currently the user has 50 Chrome tabs open and it prompts the user to please close some of those tabs to improve performance. I think that's pretty cool because while, uh, yeah, a lot of fixes 
could be automated you probably don't want to go automatically closing a bunch of chrome tabs to free up memory by prompting the user you're telling them hey we know your performance sucks right now it's because you have 50 tabs open close some you might be avoiding some complaints from the user and they may realize that it's their behavior that's causing the problem rather than a constraint or an IT support issue. From July 1st next year, Microsoft will be retiring the internal use rights association with the product license partners received in the Microsoft Action Pack and included with a competency. Product license use rights will be updated to be used for business development scenarios such as demonstration purposes, solution services development purposes, and internal training. Beginning October 1st, 2019, the product licenses included with competencies will be specific to the competency you attain. Additional licenses can then be purchased through commercial licensing to run in your business. Many in the community are pretty upset about this and have launched an online petition to try to get Microsoft to reverse the decision, claiming the exceptions do not cover every use case and that this new restriction will limit product exposure and prevent partners from keeping their knowledge and skills up to date on the vast product range that Microsoft owns. It does kind of suck, even though demonstration purposes are covered, that doesn't really cover home labs or anything like that, and they already killed the TechNet licensing that was available years ago. The MSDN, or what's it called now, Visual Studio benefits are quite expensive. I'd really like if they were to provide like a fair usage home lab type of licensing that's affordable for enthusiasts, but it seems like they're going the other way entirely with it. The Register reported on a story about an IT admin who was working for an Arizona-based company called Bluestone. He was working remotely for them from Irvine, California at the time. The company in question decided to outsource its IT operations to a new vendor. Initially, the admin was not let go and continued in a less involved role with some of his daily activities changing. After some time at a meeting, this admin resigned to the surprise of executives. Shortly after, employees started to notice that data, emails, and computer files were being deleted or transferred from Bluestone's databases, servers, and email accounts. The angry administrator also set a Mac in the office to wipe on boot from his iPhone, and even went as far as deleting marketing material and site content that took the company eight years to build. In 2015, the admin claimed he quit after filing whistleblower complaints against Bluestone for alleged improper payments to Indian gaming officials, tribal leaders, and a New Mexico politician, which since there's a dispute, that's why I'm not going to mention him by name. But with that said, in this case, he has been sentenced to 27 months in prison and ordered to pay $53,305 to his former employer, who claim it took them over 10 hours to restore as much data as they could, which was presumably not all of it, and cost up to $50,000. I don't know why, but I found it interesting that this admin is now residing in Avondale, Arizona. And at the time, he was working for an Arizona-based company, but out of California. And then he got canned, did some really bad stuff, and then moved to the same state 
as the former employer. Seems kind of weird. Either way, the story suggests that he admitted to some of those allegations anyway. So, in my opinion, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Citrix posted an article this week about enhancing Citrix WEM by providing integration and support for enabling FSLogic's profile containers within the tool. If you use Citrix Profile Management and set up WEM to help manage those settings, I bet this will be a pretty similar experience. It's just swapping the Citrix Profile Management piece, or rather than using the Citrix Profile Management piece within the menu, you'd just be setting up an FSLogix profile container within the WEM console. It's really good because, as covered on multiple episodes of the podcast, FSLogix should and could become very widespread as pretty much every Microsoft customer now owns a license. And if you are brand new to FSLogix and want a simple how to get started guide and how to set up, you should check out virtualmank, which is manc.co.uk, where Neil McLaughlin has posted a couple of blog posts this week that are definitely worth checking out for newbies. Community Rockstar and King Automator Ryan Butler also shared a chocolatey package he created for the FSLogix agent. This has been approved and is available right now. And now this week's weekly webinar. Dr. Michael McGuire of the University of Surrey and author of Behind the Dark Net Black Mirror will be hosting a Bright Talk webinar on July 18th at 6 p.m. British Summertime, which I think is 1 p.m. Eastern U.S. His report highlights the developing relationship between the enterprise and the dark net and examines the risks posed by the growing array of illicit goods and services offered on the dark net from traditional malware and remote access trojans through to more subversive forms of influence such as corporate espionage, insider trading, and whistleblower blacklisting. In the webinar, he will discuss the findings of his latest research, talk about his methodology and analysis techniques, recount his team's most notable interactions with the actual vendors on the dark net, as well as share concrete recommendations on how enterprises can better protect themselves from the dangers that lurk on the dark net. If that sounds of interest to you, definitely register for this one. I'm going to share a link, as I do with pretty much everything I cover on the podcast each week, on 5bytespodcast.com, episode 80, reference links. Alternatively, you'll find it in the description field within your podcast platform of choice for this episode. And now this episode's scripts, tricks, and tips. This one is a little different to the norm. If you are the type of person who likes to contribute to the TechNet gallery, to the community SBAs and control up, or just hammer away on GitHub repos and want to branch out even more, or even, hey, if you don't do any of that today but would like to become more engaged and involved in that sort of thing, there's a really great resource with guides on how you can contribute to open source projects, how to start your own open source project, growing and finding users for your project, best practices, governance, and much more. I would love to be doing this sort of thing. Just personally, within my career development, I've been kind of thinking of branching into different areas. This would be one I'd be very interested in. If only I had the time. (laughs) But maybe you have the time. So you might want to check this out and see if it's something that you can get more involved in. Before I sign off this week, 
I've never, I don't think I've asked before on the podcast, but if you enjoy the show each week, I'd really appreciate within your podcast platform of choice, if it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or whatever, if you could give the podcast a rating, I'd really appreciate it. I don't know why I didn't really think about that much before, and I just saw it this week that I think only three people have rated the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts. I was like, huh, maybe I should actually ask people (laughs) to rate the podcast. So if you could rate the podcast, I'd appreciate it. If not, don't sweat it. (laughs) And that's it for another week. Thank everyone so much for listening.